0: Well, we're in First Thessalonians 2. I uh, hope you have the outline. Uh, I don't know if there's some extra outlines out there, if the ushers want to bring those in, uh, because you'll need it to follow along. We probably aren't going to get everything done today. Uh, this is one of those times when there's just too much uh, in these few verses. Uh, you know, we had uh, some of the men got together for breakfast yesterday at Denny's. We had a good time. Uh, But I sat with Dennis and uh, Elijah and the little one. What's your name? Isaiah. Yeah, I'm kidding. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. But they reminded me that young guys, they can eat a lot. Wow. They can eat a lot. It made me think of my son, Jay, and I told them the story yesterday that uh, when our boys were teenagers, both the boys, (laughs) the grocery bill (laughs) goes up uh, when you have teenage boys, right? Right. Uh, but Jay, I remember he said, uh, well, something about, I'm going to make a sandwich. Okay, that's fine. Uh, and you know how it's probably like this in your house. We're family of five. Uh, we're serving the Lord on a real tight budget. So the kids, they weren't really allowed just to open up the fridge or the cupboard and get whatever they wanted. Whenever they wanted, they had to check first. Uh, and this is why, because those boys will eat you out of house and home. Uh, but anyway, Jay said, can I have a sandwich? Sure, you can have a sandwich. That's great. So then I got to thinking, you know what? That sounds kind of good. So I go in the kitchen and I look. Well, he's got two little pieces of bread and he's got all this meat. And I look and the empty package of the lunch meat was laying there and it was brand new. He just opened it. He just took out all the meat and folded it in half and put it on the bread. I said his nickname. I call him by his nickname. Dude, What? What are you doing? That's the whole that's supposed to be enough for like five or six people to have a sandwich or two. He goes, what? I'm hungry. So it's like all that meat with just that little bit of bread. I couldn't really support it that well. That's what this passage reminds me of today, Uh, because in verses 14 through 16, there's so much meat uh, in these few verses. And as we dig into this. You'll see. And that's why I don't want to rush through it. We may have to pull up short and Lord willing, finish it next week. But I'm in First Thessalonians, chapter two, uh, starting in verse 14, verses 14 through uh, 16, uh, where Paul says, for you, brethren, talking to the believers, uh, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you also endured the same sufferings at the hands of your own countrymen, even as they did from the Jews, Uh, the Jews who both killed the Lord Jesus and killed the prophets. uh, And they drove us out of Jerusalem as well uh, and out of Judea. uh, They are not pleasing to God, uh, but they are hostile to all men, hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved, uh, so that the Gentiles could be saved. With the result that they, meaning the Jewish uh, people who are persecuting believers, they always fill up the measure of their sins. Uh, But wrath has come upon them uh, to the utmost. There's some really interesting, excuse me, jewels in here. Uh, First of all, just remember some context or remember some uh, housekeeping things here. What's interesting, Paul does this sometimes in his writings. These verses... Uh, From 14 all the way, uh, uh, not including the last sentence of verse 16, but everything else in verse 16. Those three verses form one sentence uh, in uh, Paul's writing uh, because he wrote it in the Greek language, of course. And it's one long sentence. And when Paul does this, uh, one of the reasons he'll write a long sentence like this is because he's being very emotional. Uh, There's a lot of passion there's a lot of emotion, there's a lot of strength in these three verses. It's, it's almost as his uh, passion keeps rising all the way to the end until it, it climaxes with the wrath of God coming on them uh, to the utmost. Uh, and so when we read those three verses, we should read it uh, with the passion, you know, that Paul was trying uh, to emphasize uh, and we'll hit on it more in a moment. But for instance, in verse 15, uh, we read uh, who both. I mean, there's some really strong verbs in these three verses uh, who both killed the Lord Jesus uh, and the prophets. Uh, but in the language, as we dig it out and study it, it actually reads uh, more like this. He's saying who both killed the Lord, pause, Jesus. Is what he's saying. And the prophets. They killed both the Lord, Jesus, and they killed the prophets. I mean, he's really... There's a lot of passion here. uh, And a lot of uh, deep emotion. But here's what we want to remember. Uh, Some might be tempted to use these verses to support anti-Semitism. There are some who... uh, Believe that God has finished with the nation of Israel uh, and that the church has inherited all of Israel's blessings. Uh, I do not believe that's what the scriptures teach. Uh, I would direct you to Romans nine, ten, and 11 on your own sometime. Uh, we know that God has temporarily set aside everything that he has promised to the nation of Israel, the throne, the king, the land uh, that they haven't received yet. Uh, And God, when he made those promises in those covenants in the Old Testament, uh, those were eternal promises that have not come true yet. So either God is not done with Israel yet or God is a liar. Um, So I would think that, you know, if we had to choose, uh, we would choose that God tells the truth. And that, as Paul told the Romans, that God has just temporarily set aside the nation of Israel Gentiles come to saving faith in Christ that is intended to arouse the nation of Israel to jealousy and then to see them saved. So anyway, just uh, a little uh, things to look out for. Uh, and if you go to the end of verse 16, um, something else uh, that we're, we probably will not even. I don't even know if we'll begin it today, but I'd like to save uh, some time, Lord willing, next week to talk more about God's wrath. We We, we don't. Hear messages and teaching really anymore? Do we on God's wrath uh, and God's anger? Uh do you there are only two people or two beings who are always angry all the time, never not angry. God and Satan. Anger and wrath is one of God's attributes, and so we know His attributes are infinite, uh, meaning never ending, and we know they're always existing. Uh, but we'll see. Uh, next week, Lord willing, how uh, the wrath of God does not impugn the love of God at all. Uh, In fact, uh, the wrath of God serves to magnify God's glory. Uh, It's only in our human thinking that we struggle with that. Uh, And and to be fair, uh, you know, that's an honest struggle. Uh, How can a loving God allow people to go to hell? That's a tough question. Uh, and I've had people ask me even recently, if God is a loving God, why do such evil things happen? Uh, and we'll see a little bit about that. See, all that is wrapped up in these three seemingly innocent verses. Uh, but we'll dig it out. We'll just start digging today. Uh, like when you go to the beach, you know, you just start digging a big hole. You pray the wave doesn't come up right and wipe it out. So uh, we'll just start digging uh, a little bit today and uh, open this up a little bit. So, but Paul's not being um, bitter. He's not being um, vindictive. He's not being revengeful uh, because these seem like some strong words he's directing toward, especially the Jewish leaders. Uh, and so keep your finger in Thessalonians, but go to Romans, uh, because I want you to see uh, Romans chapter nine. I want you to see uh, Paul's deep love for his own countrymen. And by the way, here's a principle. Uh, let's not forget application. We have not fully learned until we have applied what we have learned. Uh, that sometimes love means speaking the difficult things that people don't necessarily want to hear. And by the way, that's why we don't hear teaching on the wrath of God and the anger of God and the doctrine of hell anymore. It is because people don't want to hear it. Um, We would rather hear that love wins. Yes, that's a veiled jab at someone, but we'll just you figure that out. All right. Okay. Anyway. All right. I'm just noticing who's awake and who's not. All right. Uh, Chapter nine uh, of Romans, verses one through five. Paul says, I'm telling the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. For I could wish, if it were possible, that I myself would be cursed, separated from Christ, for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen. He's talking about his fellow Jewish People, according to the flesh, those who are Israelites, to whom belongs the adoption as sons and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law, the temple service and the promises, whose are the fathers and from whom is the Christ, according to the flesh, who is over all God blessed forever. He says, I love my fellow countrymen so much that if it were possible, even though it's not, I would consider myself cursed and separated from Christ if they could come to Christ. And if you go over to chapter ten of Romans, starting in verse one, it says, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Jewish people is for their salvation. For I testify about them that I have a zeal that they have a zeal for God, but their zeal is not in accordance with knowledge. That's a good warning, isn't it? Uh, sometimes we become very zealous about things. But our zeal is not instructed by uh, or instructed by scripture for not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness. They chose not to subject themselves under the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. So uh, we see Paul's great, uh, great love for his countrymen. Go back to First Thessalonians, chapter two. Uh, in, uh, Ephesians 426, uh, adds, be angry and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. So is it possible to be angry and not sin? Correct. Nobody said anything and you're right. If it is, we don't know anything about it, right? (laughs) Is it possible to be angry and not sin? Well, we wouldn't know because we've never done it, Uh, I mean, yes, it is possible. There's such thing as righteous anger. Uh, By the way, why do we experience the feeling or the emotion of anger? Because God is angry. And remember, we're created in the image of God. And we have certain attributes that reflect our creator. We experience the emotion of anger because God has anger. So we know that anger is a God given Attribute of humanity. You know, anger is energy. Anger is energy that God gives us to solve problems. Uh, so anger is not sinful if it's not directed toward another person. Uh, if it's not vindictive, if it's not revengeful, if it's not selfish, if it's not self-centered, then it's OK. Right. That sounds easy enough. Right. Uh, so but Paul is saying in First Thessalonians, he's experiencing uh He seems angry, and he is, and then he talks about God's wrath, but uh, his anger is not a sinful anger. He deeply loves his own people, the Jewish people. So as we start here in verse 14, uh, these people are experiencing suffering at the hands of their own countrymen. Remember, Paul's writing to the city here, probably roughly about 200,000 people in all of Thessalonica. We're not sure how many Jews uh, but he's talking about Macedonians here, not necessarily Jewish people. Uh, their fellow countrymen in Macedonia are persecuting them uh, for their faith. But what we see here is that suffering is proof that their faith is genuine. The suffering they're experiencing for Christ is proof that their faith is genuine. Now, when we hear the word imitate or imitation, what do we usually think of? If I'm going to imitate... He says, "I become imitators. We would automatically think oh i 'm going to copy them, uh, but that 's not what he 's saying here uh, it 's just a small point. what he 's saying is the believers in Judea were being persecuted by their countrymen, and now you, as believers in Macedonia, are being persecuted by your countrymen. you have something in common with them that 's what he means they 're suffering, you're suffering, you have that in common with them. and what 's interesting. Uh, is he pulls out something even deeper here. Uh, imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus in Judea. He's trying to encourage them that you have something in common with other believers around the world. Uh, and uh, we, we struggle, I think, sometimes to, uh, I don't know, uh, appreciate uh, the universal church, right? We tend to, and I'm guilty of this just as much as anyone, we tend to zero in on what makes us different from other believers. Uh, we tend to zero in on what separates us from other believers. Uh, we tend to whittle it down to see, OK, how closely or who are we willing to associate with uh, because they're different from us and their beliefs. Uh, and all of that, I don't think is a bad thing. But taken too far we can damage the universal church. because that's what he's pointing out here. Isn't it interesting? He says those believers in Judea are in Christ Jesus. He's talking about all believers, no matter where they live. And then he says they're in Judea. He localizes them. So he's talking about the universe or the unity of all believers everywhere. Do you realize how many brothers and sisters in Christ we have all over the planet? And yeah, we may have differences in some of the doctrines that we hold, but we're still in Christ. And, and one of the things that happens, and that's why I put up, uh, I think maybe on the next slide, but uh, Ephesians. Oh, it's on your outline. Uh, Ephesians 4, 5 and 1 Corinthians 12. Really important. Talks about one Lord, one faith, one baptism. It's not talking about water baptism there. All believers have one baptism. What happens is that the moment we receive Christ, one of the things the Holy Spirit does is baptizes us into the body of Christ. Now, we would disagree with probably some of our charismatic brothers and sisters about what it means to be baptized by the Holy Spirit. Uh, I believe the Bible teaches that it's something that I don't feel, that I don't see. It happens in the heavenlies. It places me into the body of Christ. So. That's why we're unified with every believer around the world, regardless of our doctrinal differences. And there should be a love. There should be a camaraderie. Uh, Have you ever met other Christians who were? Have you ever spoken with Christians who aren't Grace Brethren? Anyone brave enough to admit it? Yeah. Okay. All right. I'm just checking. Just checking. So, of course. Right. It's wonderful when you run into a believer. Right. Uh, You just meet them when you're out and about. And then all of a sudden you realize uh, that you're both born again and uh, you have wonderful conversations, even though, uh, you know, I've met quite a few because we live in Buena Park. I've met quite a few uh, Korean believers, a vibrant, vibrant church among the Korean community, both here in the States and in uh, South Korea. Uh, so, yeah, we have that in common, don't we? That love of the Lord Jesus Christ uh, They're in Christ. But. Also, he says, not only are they unified by the Holy Spirit in Christ, but these believers are in Judea, pointing to the local church, the local, local bodies, local assemblies. What's interesting here is that Paul's pointing out, uh, uh, you know, for us Christians, we have a spiritual geography and we have a heavenly geography, so to speak. We have an earthly existence But here he's trying to remind us of that higher hidden life that we have in Christ. In Colossians chapter three, those opening verses, uh, it's before First Thessalonians. If you just flip back a couple pages in your Bible uh, or flip your finger a few times on your screen, I guess, uh, living in a different age now, Uh, Colossians chapter three, verse one. Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things where above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Now, that's that's some really interesting. That'd be a great rabbit trail. We don't have time. But what he's saying is to be in Christ means That when Christ died on that day in Jerusalem, on that cross, if you're a believer in him, you died as well. Then he goes on to say, he's talking about when Christ rose from the dead three days later, if you're a believer in Jesus, you too rose from the dead. What he means by that is there's a there's a now and not yet aspect to it. In other words. It's of such great certainty. It's so sure to happen. It's so sure that you're going to raise from the dead and get a new transformed body. It's so sure that God thinks of it as having already happened. I mean, that's a guarantee, right? That's a guarantee. And we're not there yet. But in verse uh, 16 of 1 Thessalonians 2, he's talking about the wrath that has come. It's the same thing. There's a now but not yet aspect to God's wrath. A little bit of it is being revealed, but it hasn't come in full yet. But it's so sure that it's so certain that he can say that it has come. It's really all about the tense of the words. It's really interesting. Uh, think about the confidence we can have. Think about the hope we can have. Think about the assurance we can have that your resurrection, your transformed, glorified body, is such a sure thing that God talks about it as if it's already happened. That, that's interesting, isn't it? It's really interesting. It's like I don't know why I thought of this. This may be a poor example, but uh you know my dad was a truck driver. He was in the navy and then he drove a truck for almost 40 years. And so we ate a lot of truck stops. I love truck stops. That's good food. Uh but sometimes like in the town where we lived had a couple of truck stops so you know all the waitresses they know everybody and everything and uh and so I just remember uh waitresses my dad would love his coffee and my mom would love her coffee and their their cups wouldn't even be empty yet uh, you know, or they, and my parents would say something like, uh, I, I would like to have some more coffee. Or I need some more coffee. And the waitress would say, I already got you. You know, and she would be on her way. I already got it. I got it. I got you. Uh, I beat you to it is kind of the idea of it. Uh, not yet. It's it, It's something that we have now, but not in full yet. So but it's such a guarantee and that should be such a confidence and such a hope for us to live the Christian life. So then Paul starts in talking about in verse 15, specifically the Jewish people. He uses some really strong language here. Uh, And why does he do this? Uh, And not in a vindictive way. He's talking about those who killed the Lord Jesus and they killed the prophets and they drove us out. They're not pleasing to God. They're hostile to all men. So because what he's talking about here is he recognizes that the essence of. Of all persecution is the rejection of Jesus as Savior or as Messiah. So when believers are being persecuted for their faith, wherever that might be around the world, the real essence or motivation for the persecution is a rejection of Christ as Messiah. And Paul understands that. And that's what he's talking about. So it makes us ask. Who really killed Jesus? Uh, And we don't need to ask Bill O'Reilly. Bill O'Reilly. Didn't he write killing Jesus, right? Okay, I didn't read it. so. So that's what Paul's asking. We say, who really is responsible for killing Jesus? Now, this is interesting what Paul's pointing out here. Because we know these are all testimonies of Scripture when it comes to the murder of our Lord. We know that the scriptures say the Roman soldiers killed Jesus, right? It says that Jesus or Judas was responsible for killing Jesus. Then Pilate is implicated because he could have released Jesus. In fact, he wanted to release Jesus, but he caved into peer pressure and decided to hand him over Caiaphas, the Jewish high priest is told, uh, we're told in Scripture, is responsible for killing Jesus. Then we see elsewhere that the scribes, and I put all the Scripture references on your outline, the scribes, the priests, the rulers, the Pharisees, are all charged with killing Jesus in the Scripture, as well the Jewish population, the Jewish people. So you have all of these people held responsible. So go to John chapter 19 with me. John chapter 19. Paul says they are responsible for killing the Lord, Jesus. John chapter 19, starting in verse eight. Therefore, when Pilate heard this statement, uh, he was even more afraid. And he entered into the praetorium again and said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, this is really interesting. You don't speak to me. Do you not know that I have authority to release you and I have authority to crucify you? Then Jesus answered, you would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. For this reason, he who delivered me, that could be a reference to Judas or a reference to Caiaphas, has the greater sin. And so Pilate makes every effort to release him. But the Jewish people were crying out. If you release this man, you're no friend of Caesar's. So, what do we see here? So, who's responsible for killing Jesus? All of those people are responsible or held accountable. But it's interesting, isn't it? Uh, If you go back to 1 Thessalonians 2, and the context is he's trying to encourage these believers who are suffering for their faith, and what does he encourage them to do? Look at the Lord. If you're struggling, if you're being persecuted for your faith, observe how the Lord Jesus responded to that persecution. So even in the worst evil or even in the worst circumstances, evil cannot escape the sovereignty of God. Right. Because Pilate was saying, I can have you put to death or I can release you. I've got all the power. And Jesus said, probably not this way, but he said, "Uh -uh uh-uh-uh. You only have power because my Heavenly Father has allowed you to have that power. I've got news for you, Pilate. You're not in charge. My Heavenly Father is in charge. Which means Jesus was standing there of his own free will. But he could have left anytime he wanted. And notice how that when Jesus is confronted, this is all throughout the Gospels. When he's confronted with either opposition or confronted with evil, what does he do? He takes solace in his father's sovereignty. Wasn't that what she was just singing about? When there are mountains that I need moved and they're not moved, you know, and all those other things, what am I going to do? I'm going to trust in you. And that's the example that Jesus set, right? Again and again and again in his life we see... He's preaching, he's teaching, he's healing, he's wanting to bring people into the kingdom of God. And at every turn, he's being opposed, he's being threatened. Uh, they try to kill him. Uh, they All these types of things. What does he do? He just turns and he trusts that his heavenly father knows what he's doing. Yeah, I can see it on your face. You're like, mm, what's my other choice? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's hard. It's tough, isn't it? Uh, and I like first Peter chapter two, because it talks about when Christ was reviled, he did not revile in return, but he entrusted himself to the one who judges righteously. Because we're tempted, right? When we're wronged, we're tempted to lash out. We're tempted to take revenge. We're even attempted to escape or avoid. And what did Jesus do? Jesus engaged and he trusted his heavenly father. What's in a name? He says here in verse 15 or in verse, uh, yeah, in verse 15, they killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets. And if we remember in chapter one, verse one, we see that he opens his letter in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Very interesting here uh, when we think about the names uh, used for our Lord. Uh, And first of all, think about the name Jesus, his human name, his earthly name. And here's what's interesting about that. It was an extremely common name. It's the Hebrew name Joshua. We should start calling you Jesus. Joshua. Okay. All right. Oh, very good. Mm. A very common name. So. I mean, think of the Jewish leaders and the Jewish people. And you have this man claiming to be their long-awaited savior, the Messiah. What's your name? You're our Messiah. You're our king. You're the Lord. What's your name? Oh, my name's Jeff. And they would go, oh. <laughs> because that's an ordinary name. And I hate to say, I don't mean to bring you down, but... It'd be like saying Lord Ron, Lord Don, Lord Dave, Lord Vet. Though that sounds pretty good. Lord Vet. The point is, it was a very common name. But why was that name chosen to give to him on purpose? Because God wanted to link the common and the divine together. The point was that Jesus was named Jesus so that he could identify With what it means to be one of us. And that would have been missed on those original Jewish people. They would have dismissed it as a very common name. What about the title of Lord? We're kind of familiar with that, aren't we? Kyrios. So. In Jesus' day, the Old Testament, which was written in Hebrew, was translated into Greek. They call that translation the Septuagint. And that's what was used in Jesus' day. It was the Greek Old Testament. It's what Paul would have learned from. Jesus would have read it. But notice, they call him Lord. And the word or title Lord is that deep, holy, reverence name for God. And in the Old Testament, sometimes you may see capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. That's what we're talking about here. Or you may even have the letters like YHWH. The Jews believe that God's name is so holy, they can't even use all the letters because they're not worthy enough. That's God's name. And then we come here and that name is applied to Jesus. That deep, unutterable, awesome name of God applied to Jesus Remember when Moses was at the burning bush in Exodus three and there was the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ in the burning bush. Remember, anytime you see God in physical form in the Old Testament, it's Christ before Bethlehem. And Moses said, well, that's fine. You know, God, if you want me to go and rescue your people out of Egypt, but I'm going to show up. And who am I supposed to say sent me? They're not just going to follow me. And he gives He tells Moses a great name, right? To just tell them I am sent you. It's like, what? That doesn't even make sense, God. But that phrase I am or that title is what we're talking about here. That title of Jehovah, that title of Yahweh, that title of Lord. And then we use that title with Jesus. Jesus is God. Then Paul in First Thessalonians uses Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ. What does that name mean? Means Messiah, the anointed one, the king that all of the Jewish prophecy was talking about. This king was going to show up and rescue all the people of Israel from Roman domination. But they were thinking that it was going to be some sort of human deliverer. But notice that Jesus considered the Messiahship to involve supreme service, especially at the cross. And what Jesus did was he linked The office of the Messiah to one of the greatest servant. So it's interesting, right? We should ask ourselves, do those titles mean anything to you? If you're a follower of Jesus, what does it mean that we call him Jesus, that he identifies with our humanity? It means that he understands what we feel, what we think, what we endure, what we go through. He understands it all inside and out. But then You know, we do claim him as Christ, don't we? We do claim him as the anointed Messiah. We believe that he is king. But do we live our lives as if we're living underneath the authority of a king? But especially Lord. Do we live as Christians as if Jesus is Lord of our life? Is he the almighty, the all powerful, the most highly exalted God of all gods? Do we live that way? And do we recognize That Jesus fulfills all three of these offices, that this one man uh, is the one whom we claim to serve and the one we claim to follow. Well, let's just introduce this next part and we'll wrap it up for today. And Lord willing, we'll pick it up next week. It's kind of an awkward place to stop, but I want us to see Paul starts talking about how they also killed the Old Testament prophets, the Jewish people, uh, and they drove them out uh, of Judea what he's saying here is this was just the typical expected reaction and finality of those who hated Jesus they hated Paul they hated the Apostles they hated all the believers and notice it's a national hostility it carries the feeling or the terms of a nation who is at war and Paul's point here is that this just isn't just this isn't just some mild mannered resistance or annoyance that this Jesus thing is being preached and taught they went to great lengths to thwart the salvation of all men they didn't believe that Jesus was messiah they rejected justification by faith they thought that the needs of the gentiles were of no concern to them And they had that unenlightened zeal. And Paul makes a point uh, that when he uses that word hindering, it carries the idea of something they were doing deliberately with purpose. And it carries the idea of continuing action even up today. Many Jewish theologians today still write polemics against Jesus as their messiah. It's an ongoing thing. But here's some really good news. And this is a great place to end. The wording here lets us know that they were only partially successful. Because as we read it literally would say they're trying to hinder us from speaking to the Gentiles. His point is that salvation is the great act of God and it cannot be stopped. Oh, Satan may try those who persecute and oppose. They may try and it may look like they're successful. But know this. It's only an appearance of success. It's only partial success because salvation is of God and it cannot be stopped. And we know that because the work of Christ on the cross announced the death toll on Satan and on sin and on death. It's a done deal. Satan has already lost. God has already won. And we say, well, what is he waiting for then? Let's wrap this up. Get us home. I'm ready to go. You know why? And we'll see more of this next week. We say, why does God allow all this evil to continue? And we say, because he's a patient, loving God. And he's giving man time to come into his kingdom. What are we doing with the time? And are we personally hindering evangelism or are we helping evangelism, hindering it by our own lives, our own testimonies, our own apathetic Christianity, hindering it by being difficult, uh, not supporting evangelistic efforts? Uh, Not every person is called to be an evangelist, but every Christian is called to share the gospel. Are we being a hindrance or are we being a help? to the gospel. You know, it is really interesting. Go to Acts chapter 26. This shouldn't be lost on us. Paul becomes a believer, but who was Paul before he became a believer in Jesus? He was Saul. He was Saul. Named after King Saul, which probably, which I don't know uh, if that was very flattering. Acts chapter 26. Look at verse 9. This is Paul speaking. So then I thought to myself that I had to do many things. What? Hostile to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And this is just what I did in Jerusalem. Not only did I lock up many of the saints in prisons, I received that authority from the chief priests. But also, when believers were being put to death, I cast my own lot against them. Isn't that amazing? That tells me that there is no one too far Beyond the saving hand of God. Here's Saul saying, yes, kill those Christians. I want to help kill those Christians. And now here he is saying, I am a Christian. So there's some irony here. Verse 11, as I punished them often in all the synagogues. Look, look what he said. Does he say I forced them to blaspheme? I tried. I tried to force them to blaspheme. And then being fiercely enraged because it didn't work, I kept pursuing them even to the foreign cities. Folks, let's not get discouraged in the face of opposition. Let's not get discouraged. Let's not go into despair as we look around at the world around us and think nobody cares. Nobody loves God. Nobody's interested in spiritual things. Folks, salvation is is a great act of God and it cannot be stopped. He's already told us that the harvest is plentiful, that he needs his workers to go out and gather in the harvest. We shouldn't get discouraged. We shouldn't be in despair. We shouldn't stop sharing the gospel because we don't ever see results. We know that God is calling out of the world the people for himself. And just as these Thessalonian brothers and sisters came to Christ in the midst of of extreme suffering, God is still building his kingdom today. And the only reason he has not stood up and commanded the angels to sound the trumpets to end it all is because God is in the business of saving sinners. When that very last unbeliever accepts Jesus Christ, that very last one, according to Paul in Romans 9, 10, 11, when God says that's it, That's the last believer in this age. Let's wrap this up. That day is coming. But in the meantime, we have work to do, don't we? Let's not be discouraged. Let's not be in despair. Let's stand together. Let's have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we praise you. We thank you. Uh, I think sometimes um, as Christians, especially if we're involved in ministry, It's easy to get discouraged. Uh, And I think I know I'm guilty of this. I take my eyes off the prize uh, that uh, we should rejoice. We should be happy. We should uh, have tremendous deep hope in you and trust in you uh, that you are sovereign and that you are still in the business of saving people. And that believers have always been. The brunt of persecution have always faced tremendous opposition, but that shouldn't stop us uh, because we know that you're building your kingdom in the midst of opposition. Our Lord himself conducted his ministry in the midst of severe opposition and persecution. So, Father, help us to not look at that even as something to be discouraged about, but to understand that a reality of being a disciple Is that we will face opposition. And that's why you've told us, Father, to count the cost. Count the cost. Understand ahead of time what we're getting ourselves into before we make this commitment to be your disciple. Father, my prayer, too, is that you would give us a burden for the lost. That you would give us a burden for our enemies. That you would teach us to love our enemies, to pray for them, to bless them. I also pray, Father, that you would revive our hearts. Uh, That you would drive out any discouragement or despair in our calling, our calling as Christians, perhaps our calling to ministry, uh, that we would not be driven by a certain number to measure our success, but that we would be driven by our trust in you uh, and our faithfulness to serve and obey you, uh, no matter the opposition. Father, thanks for giving us our freedom here in our country that we can gather here this morning without any fear. And may we take advantage of that freedom while we have it uh, to continually share the gospel. So we leave here praising you. We leave here rejoicing and thanking you in Jesus name. Amen. Thanks for being here today. Hope you have a wonderful day.